Arrive Without Travelling, the podcast for Beatles fans. Welcome to Arrive Without Travelling, the podcast for Beatles fans. I'm Phil Salter, Beatles fan and radio presenter. I'm Steve Bradley, the creator and founder of ArriveWithoutTravelling.com, the website and blog for Beatles fans. And this is episode two of series one. And today, Steve, we're going to talk about... The fifth Beatle. Yes, is there a fifth Beatle? Who, who would be the fifth Beatle? Who was the fifth Beatle? Who were the fifth Beatles? Is there a fifth Beatle? We've got a list of uh, contenders, haven't we? Yeah, let's have a look to the list and we'll uh, discuss their uh, relevant merits or otherwise for consideration as a fifth Beatle. So the first one on your list is Neil Aspinall. He met Paul and George at high school at the Liverpool Institute, so he was the first person to have a connection with the Beatles story later on, who uh, came into their story in February 1961 when Pete, who was a close friend of his, Pete Best, asked him to buy a van to drive the band to gigs. So he started doing that around his uh, accountancy studies and his, his work to earn a bit of extra money. His first job was really, in inverted commas, their road manager, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, he was the roadie. He was unloading the van and carrying the equipment into the gigs and uh, getting it set up, driving them back home or to the cavern or wherever they were going after the gigs. He was in school with Paul and George at the Institute. He was in the same year as... Paul, I think, and George was in the year below, uh, and Aspinall remembers a story of meeting George uh, in the smoker's corner in the playground where they were smoking goodbye and cigarettes as, uh, as young teenage smokers. His influence always helped for the Beatles. I mean, without him, they would have had no van, so without the van, they would have had no gigs. Without gigs, they wouldn't have been a band. Yes, that's right. They were struggling around on buses, weren't they, across Liverpool, carrying instruments and so on. But uh, they certainly were able to raise their game as a, a working band by having a van and a driver to get them to gigs and get the equipment in safely and, uh, and back out again. There were some amazing stories, weren't there, as well, about uh, some of the drives they went on. Because in those days in the UK or England, there were just no decent roads. No motorways, really, was there? Hardly any motorways, certainly not in the early 60s. So some of the longer trips, like um, down to London for the Decca audition, in bad weather, and it took something like 10 hours, I think, didn't it, to get to London. His role evolved and progressed from a van driver to being a road manager when they, they hired Mal Evans, plus they had other people coming in to help with the driving. So Neil became more of a personal assistant, their right-hand man when they were on tour and making films. He was always there, always in the background to fix things, get things, go out and buy things they needed, arrange introductions to people, get people out of the room when the Beatles had had enough of chatting to people, that sort of thing. He was always there, he was always involved. He saw a lot of what went on behind the scenes. And he was instrumental, if, if, I'm not, uh, if I'm not wrong, in the original thought of a documentary about the Beatles, wasn't he? The anthology. Well, before or, that... What, what became anthology? Yeah, The Long and Winding Road, as it was originally called, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then eventually he became the executive producer of uh, anthology and was one of the, the few people, other than the four Beatles, to be interviewed for the series. And he was the most trusted member, I think, of their inner circle, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He had incredible uh, integrity and trustworthiness and they, they knew they could, they could trust him with anything. Uh, he had access to all of the financial information, the business information, the legal information. He never sort of uh, spilled the beans and shared the story in ways that weren't appropriate. So uh, a real trusted and reliable right-hand man. And if you wanted something doing, it had to go through Neil, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he was, the, he was the point of contact for anyone outside of the group. Obviously, Brian Epstein fulfilled that role to some degree as well. But um, yeah, any sort of media requests or whatever, people usually had to go through Neil first to uh, arrange the introduction to the Beatles. And of course uh, he had a connection with Pete Best because he had a relationship at one time with Mona Best, Pete's mother, didn't he? That's right, he had a relationship with Mona uh, when he was living in their house in West Derby, which was also the location of the Casbah Club. And Pete and Mona had a son, Rogue, who now runs the Casbah and the Liverpool Beatles Museum. Neil was an integral part of the Apple organisation, of course. After Brian Epstein died and the Beatles were lacking in direction and didn't have a manager, they were setting up the Apple business 
and Neil reluctantly agreed to be the head of Apple only until they found someone else to do it. He was prepared to do it in the short term. He had accountancy training. He knew the Beatles very well. They trusted him. So he was the right man for the job, but he didn't really want to do it long term. Of but course, he did. He, of course, he ended up doing it for a long, long time. He was with Apple from 1968 until 2007. So he was certainly uh, serving the group and involved in their story longer than, than anybody else, really. And I think he, he, the reason for him leaving Apple in 2007 was through ill health because he sadly passed away in uh, 2008. Yes, um, well, he, he, he resigned um, on the 4th of May 2007, and then he died less than a year later, March 2008, aged just 66, from cancer. Although I think his resignation also followed on from some disagreements he'd had with, with the surviving Beatles about the Beatles' music going onto iTunes and being streamed on the streaming services, that sort of thing. There was a bit of contention between him and the group as to how their music and their brand would be presented in the future. He handled a lot of legal actions for the Beatles from sort of 1969, around the time of the breakup, up until 1977, when their legal affairs were finally settled. He was also involved heavily in legal action with Apple computers over the use of the Apple name and the Apple brand. That started in about 1978 and lasted into the early 21st century. So he was certainly kept busy behind the scenes, helping to protect their reputation and their brand. So there we are, contender number one for the fifth Beatle, Neil Aspinall. Arrive without travelling. The second one I've got on my list uh, was Stu Sutcliffe who was a, an art college friend of John's, and in spring of 1960 he bought a bass so he could join the group under the persuasion of John and Paul because they needed a bass player. Now he left the group in July 61, so he was only in the Beatles for just over a year, but his influence was, was to last for a long time and it affected a lot of things within the group. He helped come up with the name of the group, he helped with evolving their hairstyle, the clothes they wore, he provided an artistic influence, he introduced them to Astrid Kirischer and Klaus Vormann and Jürgen Vollmer who helped photograph the group and shape the group's identity. I often wonder if Stuart had lived, if he would have designed any of their record covers. Uh, maybe he would have done the revolver sleeve had he lived instead of um, Klaus Vormann. He might have been able to direct videos of theirs or films um, and take photographs of them and do record cover designs, that sort of thing. Yeah, he wasn't a musician as such, was he? I mean, when he performed with the Beatles in Hamburg, he was the bass player and his technical ability was such that he didn't even want to face the audience he actually used to stand with his back to the audience because he was very limited on his abilities yeah that's the the sort of the, the legend that's gone down in history um i think there's, there's a bit more to it than that i think the first few gigs he played and a couple of auditions he played he, he did do that but he did become more proficient i mean he was practicing every day john and paul were coaching him he it's not very well known but he had actually played guitar before then in childhood he, he dabbled with guitar so he knew his way around a guitar a little bit he was probably a more competent musician than he's given credit for, but he did become uh, adequate and, and certainly competent on the bass a bit later on. But he left the group, summer of 61, to uh, concentrate on his, uh, his art and his, uh, his painting career. Yeah, I mean, he was the most stylish, wasn't he? He gave them a, a lot of their style. Him and Astrid created the Beatles' haircuts and the look, really, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, I think it was Jürgen Vollmer who, who first did the haircut, but um, he became into the Beatles' orbit via Stu, so there's a lot of connections there with a lot of things that had a, a lasting influence on the group. As we mentioned before, the name of the group, the hair, the clothes, the image, the artistic style of the group, a lot of that came from Stu. So I think he's a worthy contender for a possible fifth Beatle. He's certainly an ex-Beatle. He's an ex-Beatle, yes. That's uh, arguably um, a more important role than being a fifth Beatle, but he's certainly an ex-Beatle too. And, uh, of course, he, he tragically died very young, 21, in April 1962. Yes, that's right. It was a brain hemorrhage, wasn't it? He'd had uh, various problems like um, terrible headaches and um, light sensitivity, tiredness and so on. He'd not done a great deal in terms of getting medical treatment, unfortunately. He'd had opportunities for x-rays and scans and whatever. He hadn't always pursued those as perhaps he should have done. The problem wasn't identified properly, and uh, sadly it cost him his life. How true are the rumours that a lot of this was attributed to a fight with John Lennon? 
Well, it was Albert Goldman that said that, wasn't it? In in his book, The Lives of John Lennon. Um, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. No, I think that was Goldman coming up with a new angle to to sell a book, as has happened so many times. There was the story of Sutcliffe being beaten up at uh, Latham Hall, wasn't there, on, on a, after a gig on Merseyside? But experts have since said that the time that elapsed between the incident and his death would rule out that as being the cause of the brain hemorrhage. So it may have just been a natural condition that unfortunately arose, wasn't uh, diagnosed or treated properly and cost him his life. So contender number two is Stu or Stuart Sutcliffe. Actually, he's got a great full name, Stuart Ferguson Victor Sutcliffe. It's a great name, isn't it? Yeah. He was a Scottish guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was born in Edinburgh. His parents were proud Scots. Again, something we we don't really know because did he speak with a Scottish accent? Does, do, have we ever heard Have we ever heard Stuart Sutcliffe interviewed or spoken? No, no I've not. He w- he moved away from Scotland when he was about three or four, and he grew up in Highton on Merseyside, so he, he wouldn't have had a Scottish accent. Arrive without travelling. The podcast for Beatles fans. The next one I've got on my list is Pete Best. He's the next contender for our fifth Beatle. He joined the group in August 1960 when they were about to go to Hamburg. They had just a couple of days to prepare. They needed to get a a five-piece group together and they asked him to join the group. I always think it's interesting that by this point they'd already known him for about a year. They started playing the Casbar Coffee Club in 1959. Pete obviously lived in the same house. He had a drum kit. They knew he played drums. He was of the same age group. They never asked him to join the group before, whenever they needed a drummer. It came to the crunch, though. They were going to Hamburg. They had to get a drummer to secure the gig, and then they finally asked him. I think that's quite telling, bearing in mind how things panned out later on. There's obviously recorded evidence of Pete's ability on the drums, and while he was okay as like a show band drummer or whatever, if you listen to certain things, for example, the Decker audition, or specifically the uh, Love Me Do audition uh, to EMI, you can see the issues. Yes, yeah, I think he was. He could hold down a steady beat for a dance hall in a gig in Liverpool, but he wasn't a studio drummer or a recording drummer. Uh, it's also said that he didn't fit in with them personally. His personality was different to theirs. His sense of humour was different to theirs. He didn't have the right chemistry to fit in with the other three in the way that Ringo did. But he served the Beatles well for two years, August 60 to August 62. Went through a lot of adventures with them, like going to Hamburg, the Decker audition, the first EMI auditions. So um, another contender for Fifth Beatle and, of course, an ex-Beatle. Certainly an ex-Beatle. I mean, he's certainly a huge contender for the Unluckiest Man in the World award. <laughs> Unluckiest Man in Showbiz. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. The way it was handled was a shame. It was a shame that none of the, the Beatles themselves were there to sort of give him the news and share the news with him that they were going to let him go. They sort of dumped that uh, dirty task on Epstein, but I guess perhaps that was his job as the manager. Uh, ultimately, he earned quite a lot of money, didn't he, through the anthology series? He did, yes. I thought it was telling, though, that when he left the Beatles, no other group snapped him up as their drummer. His reputation as a drummer on Liverpool was such that he, he wasn't invited to join uh, an established group that might have had him um, you know, as a drummer and also with his ex-Beatle connection. That might have been helpful. A group was formed for him, wasn't it? Uh, was it Lee Curtis and the All-Stars, which then became the Pete Best Four? Yeah, it's a great title of his debut album, Best of the Beatles. Best of the Beatles, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised they didn't they didn't have a go at that, but uh, anyway. I mean, we, we've met Pete, haven't we, a couple of times? Yes, yeah, lovely guy, lovely, uh, genuine fella. We've sort of said this, lovely guy, but as a personality, you can see why, as you said before, why he didn't quite fit in with the Beatles. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have the same uh, charisma, perhaps, as, uh, as the Fab Four have. He also was the last one, although I'm not even sure he ever did adopt the Beatles haircut. 
No, he, he didn't, did he? There are some pictures of him, I think, from the mid-60s when he had sort of combed his hair forward into a fringe and a, a beetle mop top. But certainly in his uh, his lifespan within the group, he, he didn't do that, did and he? I think that was another thing that disassociated himself from the group yeah, by yeah. doing this. Uh, he always said that they never asked him to comb his hair forward, but perhaps they shouldn't have needed to ask him. And when Ringo joined the group, he shaved his beard off, trimmed his sideburns and, and combed his hair forward straight away. So, But there we go. Yes, so fifth beetle, not sure. Certainly an ex-beetle. Yeah. Okay, so that's Pete Best. Arrive Without Travelling with Steve Bradley and Phil Salter. Moving on to the next one. Um, next name I've got on my list is Brian Epstein. Probably the most important character in the Beatles story. That's a point for debate, because I think the next person on my list is, is more important, but we'll come to that in a moment. Ooh. Yes, Brian um, has an enormous impact on the Beatles story. He spotted their potential, he shaped them, he directed them, he sold them to the media, to the industry, he sold them to the record industry, the TV producers, the film directors, all those people were able to see the potential in the Beatles because of the way that Brian polished them and packaged them for the industry. The most staggering thing, just before we carry on, when he first met the Beatles, he was 28 years old or thereabouts, right. 27, 28. I mean, that, that's nothing. I mean, as as a child growing up with the Beatles, I heard of Brian Epstein, saw pictures of him, and just imagined him to be an older guy. And as I grew up and realised how old he was, and I got to that age and surpassed that age, he was a, he was a mere child doing <laughs> this worldwide <clears throat> phenomenon that no yep. one had ever done before anyway yep. and making a lot of mistakes on the way in retrospect when you see how much money the Beatles could have made that didn't make. Yes, he, he has been criticised for that, hasn't he? But, but he was a young man. What was he to know? No, there was no rule book he could follow. No one had done it before. No one expected the success to be the way that it was. Um, he did make mistakes, but he was honourable. And uh, you know he loved them, he cared about them. He didn't just see them as a commodity. He didn't just see them as a way for him to make money. He cared about them as people. He cared about the music. He cared about the reputation. So he was the right man for the job for them. At the time, he, he certainly was. I mean, you've got to say that without Brian Epstein, Brian Epstein, we don't do, How do we pronounce it? In Mark Lewis's book, it tells us, and I should have it in front of me, I can't remember. Brian used to say Epstein, but his family all said Epstein. Yeah, I think he liked to be a little bit different, didn't yes. he? I mean, it was a way out as well, wasn't it, for Brian from doing the job? I mean, he wanted to be an actor all his life. Yeah. That was his yeah. thing. And then then he ended up working in the family shop, NEMS. And obviously, he develops NEMS as a record store. It was a, a massive feature in Liverpool, wasn't it, in the in the early 60s? It was reputedly the, the biggest and best record shop in the northwest of England. When he appeared at the Cavern, it was a big thing. Yeah, he was a, a VIP. He was a almost a local celebrity. I feel that Brian was, he was drifting through life. He was looking for something that was the thing that he was meant to do. He didn't know what it was, but he he would know when he found it. He'd had a failed military career when he did his national service. He'd tried to be an actor, that hadn't worked out. He'd tried running a furniture shop and got bored. He was running the record shop and looking for something else. He was just looking for something in life that was to be his purpose. Then he went to the, the cavern, saw the Beatles on stage and realised that was it. That was his vocation in life, to be a manager and to make them stars. The reason he went to the cavern, whether this is an apocryphal story, we still don't know, do we? how he was asked for a copy of My Bonnie, a, a customer called Raymond Jones, apparently, although no one's ever heard of Raymond Jones from that day to this. I think he, he has been tracked down, it has been verified, it is a true story. Oh, that's good the, to know. The, the, the story was complicated a little bit by people like Alistair Taylor saying that they had made the name up and written it in the book and it wasn't true. It was true. There was a guy called Raymond Jones, he has been identified. He came into the shop, as did quite a few other people, they were asking for the My Bonnie record, and that led Epstein to investigate uh, and go and see the Beatles at the Cavern. Yeah, well, of course, My Bonnie hadn't been released in the UK. It was a, it was a German record from Tony Sheridan and the Beatles, I think yes. it was credited to, well, wasn't it? Yes, the Beat Brothers. 
Was it the, was Beat, it Brothers? the Beat Brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it didn't have Beatles on it. But Epstein started to arrange to uh, import copies of it from Polydor in Germany, and they, they swiftly sold in the shop. Uh, and, of course, he, by now he'd seen the potential of the group. And, of course, he was just taken not only with the music but by their image, wasn't he? Yes, the whole package, I think, the the, the personalities, the chemistry, the sense of humour, the, the confidence, the uh, almost arrogance that Lennon had on stage. He was uh, transfixed by all of it. It was a, a fantastic story. And he went in, into the cabin, obviously, with, with Alistair Taylor, didn't he? Yes, I think Taylor went briefly at the start but left because he, he could see it wasn't really his thing and he didn't understand why Brian would, would be there because Brian normally would, was into sort of opera and like classical music and theatre and that sort of thing. It, it was quite strange because uh, he kept going to the, the cabin and uh, he actually got in contact with Alan Williams, who was their previous promoter and manager, Yes, uh, to, just to make sure that he was no longer affiliated to the group yes and he, he advised him in the strongest possible terms not to touch them with a effing barge pole that's the word <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> due to a, a hamburg concert percentage that the group had used to pay him hadn't they yeah they'd sent 10 percent of i think of their earnings back to williams from the first hamburg engagement they arranged the second hamburg engagement themselves while they were there and refused to pay williams a commission for it he pointed out quite fairly that had it not been for him they wouldn't have been in hamburg in the first place so they did fall out over that, but they, they later made up and, uh, and got over it. Brian was the one that had to dismiss Pete Best. He didn't agree with the decision at first because he saw that Pete was very popular with the fans and he, he was concerned that it would affect the, the fan base of the group if they, if they got Pete out and brought Ringo in. But the, the Beatles were determined. George Martin also felt that Pete wasn't the right man for the group, so Brian had to do the deed. I think Brian became a little bit irrelevant to the Beatles story, certainly once they decided to stop touring. Yeah, he lost his main purpose then, didn't he? That was the start of the end for him, and they stopped touring August 66, and he died August 67. I think the end of the last tour was the start of the end for Brian, sadly. He didn't see a way forward to what he could do with the group because they didn't need him in quite the same way. In a way, they probably didn't recover from his death. I think Brian dying was the start of the end of the Beatles. They sort of drifted into Apple, Alan Klein came. Uh, it all got a bit messy, a bit complicated. It was more and more about business and money and less and less about people and music. So that was perhaps the start of the end of the group. The tragedy for me is that Brian didn't live to see the legacy. He didn't live to see what the Beatles became in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. He couldn't have uh, shared and had the pride in what he helped to achieve and what he, what he created. But certainly he, ha he has a place in Beatles history and a contender for the fifth Beatle. Yeah, a huge place in Beatles history and a definite contender for fifth Beatle. Arrive without travelling. And I've just realised who your next one is. I've just realised who it has to be. I know it's obviously George Martin. It's isn't George it? Martin, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. He came into the Beatles sort of orbit in the spring of 1962 um, as the producer at Parlophone at EMI, uh, and he's often mentioned as the fifth Beatle. And his uh, his contribution to the group's story is enormous, isn't it? Well, it certainly shaped the sound of the Beatles, I think, uh, studio-wise. If you listen to some of the groups that recorded for other companies, for, for Decca, like the Rolling Stones, people that didn't record at EMI, or yeah. Tabby Rhodes, yeah. the quality of the studio recordings is not as good as the quality yes. of the Beatles recordings. They don't stand up quality-wise. They're great recordings, but they had a production and a, and a sound all of their own. Yeah. And he was prepared to let <clears throat> them develop as well and help them get sounds when John Lennon wanted to sound like a Tibetan monk. On a, on a mountain top, on a mountain yeah. top or Wurlitzer organ sounds for Henry the Horse and all this kind of stuff. George Martin was prepared to do this for them. I think in the early days he was great at leading and showing them and teaching and um, helping get the best out of them when they didn't really know the studio. But then gradually he was able to take a step back and let them lead and them articulate what they wanted as best they could and he would transfer that into sound to go down on tape. And of course they were huge Goons fans and things like that and George Martin produced the Goons and Peter Sellers, Bernard Cribbins, all this kind of stuff. So that 
really impressed the Beatles. Yes. Uh, again, sense of humour plays a part. Scousers, as we know, they have a great sense of humour. They met George Martin, who was a kindred spirit, a like-minded uh, wit. There's the famous story, isn't there, about when they first went for their audition and George Martin said, is, is there anything you don't like? And Harrison said, I don't like your tie. Now, some producers would have taken offence at that. Who are these cheeky kids saying they don't like my tie? But George Martin had a sense of humour. He was able to laugh it off and they would press on with their career. He also made a huge contribution musically by suggesting arrangements, introductions to songs, the addition of piano or percussion, that sort of thing, just to add a bit more to the track. So he made a major contribution to their story. He helped choose which songs would be singles, what would be the A-side. He helped plan the running order of the albums. He worked very closely with Brian Epstein and Dick James on managing their catalogue and you know, the record releases. His biggest regret was not being available when She's Leaving Home needed an arrangement making. And Paul McCartney was in such a rush to do it that he gave the job to Mike Leander. Who I think, if you listen to, there's nothing wrong with the arrangement of She's Leaving Home, but if you listen to something like Yesterday or the work that George Martin did for George Harrison, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, for the Love Album, yeah. that delicate sound. She's Leaving Home is quite heavy-handed and it's full-on and it's, it's everything a, in there. It's a bit oversweet. It would have been nice to hear what George Martin would have made of that. But yep. another story in the Beatles catalogue. I, I think George Martin, with him, it was a case of less is more. He would have had less uh, notes and less less music on the string section of She's Leaving Home. The version that we hear on Sgt Pepper is a little sweet and a little bit uh, over the top, I think. But he was hugely indulgent of the Beatles, wasn't he? When John Lennon wanted backward tape on everything because he'd heard it he he allowed him to to do these things yeah but he, he also reined them in a little bit didn't he yeah he, he struck the right balance between um giving them their, their freedom and indulging them as you say but also um maintaining that quality control and knowing when to sort of say okay lads enough that's not going to work or let's move on and try something else just like brian he was the right person for the group at that time and they were lucky they, they met each other and, and succeeded together he also of course worked with paul in his solo career he produced live and let die and I think he produced three of McCartney's albums in the 80s, didn't he? I was very close to meeting him one day. I was at an exhibition in London, and someone said, oh, George Martin was here a few minutes ago. What, What? the Beatles produced? Yeah, yeah, I think he's just over there. I scoured the place. Nah. Oh, you just missed him, him. hard a shame. So I must have missed him. Always, uh, I, I never got the chance to meet him myself, but he, he seems like he was a, a nice guy and had time for the fans, didn't he? He was very patient and uh, happy to speak to people. So, he, yeah, he was our next contender for Fifth Beatle and he, he made a, a unique and immeasurable contribution to their music catalogue. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's about the music, isn't it? You can't big George Martin up enough, can you? I yeah. think without him, we wouldn't have got the Beatles as we know and love them. Yeah, totally. I think it's as simple as that. Totally, yep. Arrive without travelling. The next one on the list I've got is a bit of a surprise for you here, maybe. Derek Taylor. OK, well, it's not a surprise that he's on the list. He was a huge part of the Beatles story, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, the, the reason I included him was because George Harrison himself suggested Derek Taylor was the fifth Beatle. In January 1988, when the Beatles were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, George Harrison named both Neil Aspinall and Derek Taylor as two people worthy of being fifth Beatles. Well, he was the press officer, wasn't he? Yeah, he was hired by Brian uh, in June 1963 after he'd met the Beatles at a gig in Manchester and uh, written an article for, I think it was the Daily Express, which was very sort of favourable and very complimentary to the Beatles and their sound. And so he worked for NEMS for about six months. He found then he couldn't get on with Brian, they kept arguing. So he left NEMS and became a press officer for other bands and also spent a time in America. Uh, he was actually the co-author, wasn't he, of uh, Brian's book, A Cellar Full of Noise? Yes, that's right. Um, well, I say co-author, I think he, he pretty much wrote it, didn't he? He, he, he ghost-wrote it for, for Brian. Um, and then later on he returned back to London and came to work for Apple. He was there from April 68 to the end of 1970 doing all of the press and PR for the Apple label and the Apple artists. 
I mean, he, he moved to America, didn't he? And he one of his uh, bands that he was touting along the way was The Birds, who were hugely influenced by the Beatles' 1964 Hard Day's Night album. Yeah, that's right, with the, uh, the 12 string, the European back of 12 string. He also, I think, worked briefly with the Beach Boys, the Mamas and Papas, a few other bands uh, on, the, on the West Coast there in the 60s. Yeah, well, he helped organise the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Oh, and I think he also had a radio show in the USA in Pasadena. The stuff you find on the internet when, you, <laughs> when you're scouring around. Interestingly, he was a, a big ally of George Harrison's. He got on very well with John and Ringo, but um, his relationship with Paul was always quite strained. For some reason, the two of them never quite got on. There's, there's a great quote I found of Derek Taylor's where he said, I don't think I ever hated anyone as much as I hated Paul in the summer of 1968. Not heard that quote. I mean, 68 was when Apple was launched, the Apple Records label, and uh, Derek uh, oversaw the public launch of that. Uh, in fact, he was the one that thought of the uh, idea of sending the first four singles to the Queen. They sent uh, Hey Jude uh, and the, the three other singles that have been released at the same time. I think Mary Hopkin, um, Black Dyke Mills Band. I'm not sure who it was. I, I should I should have Googled this before we came on and talked about it. There was certainly Jackie Lomax was one of those. I think. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's also rumoured that he contributed some lyrics to songs as well. He helped John with the lyrics to Happiness is a Warm Gun and George with Savoy Truffle. But he wasn't given a credit for that. And his, his sort of final moment of fame with the Beatles, perhaps, was being uh, mentioned by name in Give Peace a Chance. Yes, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, along with Thomas Mothers uh, and uh, Tommy Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. So, was Tommy Cooper mentioned? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, I'd forgotten that one. Anyway, so Derek Taylor, is, I think, is a contender for Fifth Beatle, not least because George himself said it, but uh, his, his involvement with them was um, fairly mixed. Of course, he came back in uh, anthology in the 90s. He was... Uh, he helped with the book, he appears in the TV series, so he has some good stories to tell. And he died, unfortunately, in September 1997. Again, only 65. Arrive Without Travelling, with Steve Bradley and Phil Salter. OK, um, so that's another contender for Fifth Beatle, Derek Taylor. Uh, the next one on my list is Mal Evans. Oh, well, yes, a huge part of the Beatles story, wasn't it? Yeah. He joined in more them... ways than one. Yeah, <laughs> yes, huge guy, big huge guy, huge character. Big Mal. He joined them in August 1963 as a bodyguard and roadie. He'd been a fan of the group when he went to see them in the cavern, um, from Liverpool, of course, uh, and he worked with them all the way through the 60s. He was um, accompanied them on tour. He pops up in the films, doesn't he? He pops up in Hard Day's Night briefly. Do you remember that? Uh, I can't picture him in Hard Day's Night. Just remind me where he is in that. He's, there's a corridor scene where John meets a lady who mistakes him for someone else. And Mal, I think, walks through the scene, oh, or he's, right. he's briefly in the background. You can, okay. He doesn't speak, but he pops up briefly. I know in Help he's the swimmer, isn't he? Yeah. He's the, he's the popping up through the ice. The lost the, cross-channel yeah. swimmer. He pops yeah. up twice in Help. Yeah. He's seen on the bus in Magical Mystery Tour. And do you remember him in Let It Be as well? I think he's in the opening scene, isn't he, when he brings the drums on? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. the drums. Ring, Ringo's yeah. drums up, yeah. Um, so he, he was there for pretty much everything, all the gigs, or the, making the films, recording sessions. He used to go out and do their errands for them. I don't know if, if one of the Beatles needed some clothes buying, they would just say, socks, Mal, <laughs> underpants, Mal, and he'd have to go off to Marks and Spencer's and buy whatever they needed. And he, of course he appears on two huge songs in the Beatles catalogue, doesn't he? Yes. He's a bit down in the mix on the first one. He's, he's the one that's counting on a day in the life, isn't Yes, that's he? right, you can hear him counting out the bars. bars yeah. yeah. And he plays the anvil in... Uh, Maxwell Silverhammer. Yeah. yeah. I also like the story that he used to carry a bag with him at all times with everything the Beatles might need, so guitar strings, bass strings, plectrums, cigarettes, lighters, screwdrivers, all these bits and pieces, and if ever they needed something, they'd just reach out, it would be there. Uh, Mal would produce it straight away. He worked for Apple, he helped sign um, the Ivies. Yeah, who became, who Bad became Badfinger. He actually produced uh, No Matter What. For, oh, for, for Badfinger. For Badfinger, yeah. Yeah. 
And he discovered Splinter, who appeared on George Harrison's Dark Horse label. Right. Uh, yeah. Costa Feintown was their big hit. And he produced uh, Jackie Lomax's New Day. And he wrote a song with George Harrison for the Ringo album, You and Me, Babe. You remember that one? Yeah. All yeah. Right. Of course he, he did. He yeah. co wrote that, so he'd have had some uh, much appreciated royalties, I'm sure. Sadly, though, after the Beatles split up, although he continued to be involved with ex-Beatles, his uh, his life seemed to sort of lose a bit of direction, didn't it? And uh, he came to a rather unfortunate end. Remember he, the story? Yeah, he he was. Uh, I can't remember exactly the story, but I know he, he was shot by the police ultimately. Yeah, he was threatening someone with a, an air rifle um, in Los Angeles in 1976. Um, he was in a relationship. He'd split up with his wife, and it, it was settled in, in America by now. Uh, and the police were called. I think he was under the influence of drink or drugs, unfortunately. The police burst in. He refused to put the rifle down and they shot him. He was only 40 when he died. Yeah. Also, he'd been working on a book. He'd, be, he'd, he'd largely written a manuscript of a book he was going, hoping to publish with his um, reminiscences of his stories with the Beatles, but uh, it's never seen the light of day. So, Mal Evans, another contender for Fifth Beatle. Yep. Arrive without travelling. Just a couple more that uh, popped up in 1964 now. I say this tongue-in-cheek. Murray the K. <laughs> yes, the self-proclaimed fifth Beatle. Well, he, he was, I think, the first person to claim he was the fifth Beatle. Um, so, he's, in a way, he started all this nonsense, didn't he? Well, I think he, he was probably quite important to, to the Beatles in America. In the UK, he, he's a, a non-entity, isn't he? Yeah, Nobody yeah. knows who he is. I mean, he, he, there's pictures of him wearing Beatles wigs and all kinds of stuff. Yes. And uh, yeah. he was probably, I don't know how old he would have been, but he was probably in his Too 40s old. at that time. Too old to be wearing a Beatles wig. And not a Beatles, so <laughs> probably irrelevant. But, but yeah. maybe for a, for a few months. He, he certainly helped the Beatles music get out there. Yeah, I think he saw an opportunity to, to, to latch himself onto something that yeah. was going to be successful anyway and, and promote himself. But uh, yeah, it's, it was a bit of fun, wasn't it? He called himself the fifth Beatle, so I thought I'd mention him. Uh, another one for you, also from 1964, Jimmy Nickel. Well, now then, yes. Well, he, he I mean, he goes into the category of ex-Beatles, Ex doesn't he? yes. And uh, only this week I, I saw two bits of footage featuring Jimmy Nickel online. Obviously, Jimmy took over when Ringo had tonsillitis during the Australian tour, yes. beginning of the Australian tour in 1964. Yeah. Um, and there was an interview with the Beatles, obviously, when they landed in Australia, and Jimmy doesn't say a word. Yeah. That, that whether they, they don't want to let him, or he, he, he's, he's very clever how he sort of backs off and he, he doesn't look as though he's not going to say a word. It just, it just, they don't ask yes. him anything and yeah. he doesn't say anything. But then I saw a performance with the Beatles. I'd, I'd never seen Jimmy performing with the Beatles. Have you seen Yes, any? yeah, yeah. He doesn't have hit those drums. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> he, makes Ring, a, he makes Ringo look pedestrian. <laughs> he's got um, a style for small clubs, hasn't he? And he was yeah. playing that same sort of style, I think. Well, anyway, he was a session drummer. He, he drummed on records. He played in studios. But mostly he was doing live work. I think he was older than the Beatles, wasn't he? Um, I'm not sure. I think he was a couple of years older. Yeah, he was close in age. But anyway, he was a Beatle for a couple of weeks, um, but as you say, he was an ex-Beatle, but uh, he's often mentioned in these uh, fifth Beatle lists, isn't he? Yeah, and I think he says that being a Beatle ruined his life, doesn't he? Well, I've read a quote from him. He said it was the best thing that ever happened to him and the worst thing that ever happened to him. He perhaps never quite recovered from it, uh, from those those heights. Uh, he made fantastic money on that, that brief tour, but he didn't invest it very well. He um, spent money hiring a band that had no hits. He um, had various business ventures and got ripped off. He, I think, got into problems with drugs. He spent his time living in Mexico. His marriage broke up. He was declared bankrupt. So it's, it's a very sad story. But without Jimmy, the Beatles couldn't have done that tour. Certainly then they would have had to postpone it or cancel it. Yeah, well, they couldn't cancel it because they'd have lost a fortune on all the, the, the bookings they'd played, the, the flights, the hotels, the tickets that had been sold. They couldn't rearrange it because the diary was already full for the remainder of 64 anyway. So, yeah, he, he stepped in and saved the day, um, practically at the last minute, and, and able the tour to go ahead. 
So interesting. He goes on our list as a contender for a fifth contender Beatle. Contender for fifth Beatle, I think, yeah. Now, I've got one more contender for fifth Beatle, which I'll share with you now. Are you ready? Go on. Liverpool. Okay. The city of Liverpool could be considered the fifth Beatle because it's, um, obviously, it's where they're from and there's something about the place which I think shows you that they couldn't have come from anywhere else. It's a unique city. Um, we, we can say this is non-Liverpudlians. We sort of appreciate the place, don't we? Um, the influences of the city, their parents, the music, the culture, the humour... All of that sort of fed into making them who they were. Uh, the live music scene, it had a, a live music scene unlike any other city possibly in the world. Lots of venues, lots of dance halls, lots of groups. It's the city where they met, where they formed. It's where they, people came into their story like uh, Alan Williams, Brian Epstein, Bob Wooler. Um, all of the other Fifth Beatle candidates that we've met were born in Liverpool, apart from George Martin uh, and Jimmy Nicholl. They're, they're all um, other people from Liverpool. So I think the city um, has played an underrated part in their story in terms of shaping them and helping them become who they were. So I thought I'd mention that as a possible fifth Beatle as well. Not only that, but Liverpool is a huge contender because it helps perpetuate the story of the Beatles. It's the tourism that, that comes to Liverpool to, to follow the story of the Beatles. They want to see Strawberry Fields, they want to see Eleanor Rigby, they want to go on the Magical Mystery Tour, yep. they want to see the, the Beatles story at, at the docks. Yeah, these, the city's um, finally come very good at celebrating the heritage that the Beatles have left, the legacy of, of the group. Um, so yes, Beatles fans from all over the world come to the city now and, and local fans like us are there regularly to um, explore and enjoy the history. It's a huge part of Liverpool's tourism. I like the idea of it being a city, not a person. It's just uh, a slightly different take on the on the story. I think if, we, if we're going to do that, we should also add Abbey Road as, as a contender. Um, the studio. The studio, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Because yeah. I think it shaped the sound. I would say that ties in with George Martin as a fifth Beatle. It does, but, uh, you know, Abbey Road also allowed the Beatles the freedom. They could come and go as they pleased. They didn't have to book studio time. They just turned up and used the studios when they were available. So Abbey Road really is a huge part of the Beatles yes, story as well. Because it allowed them to be innovative and daring and uh, yeah. and take their time with what, what they were doing. I've got one other contender for a uh, possible fifth Beatle. That, be, that would be Klaus Vormann. OK, that's an interesting choice. Go on, tell me your reasons why. Well, a few reasons. He was a huge part of their early life in Hamburg. He followed the story into producing and creating the Revolver Sleeve. Yes. He then formed a small little band with John and Ringo to produce John Lennon's first Plastic Ono Band album. Yes. And there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, when Paul left the group, that maybe Klaus would be the replacement. Yep, he played at uh, the Bangladesh concert as well, didn't he? Uh, I think he did. Yeah. And I, I think he also played with John in Toronto, didn't he? On the yes, he did. On the live piece in Toronto. Yes, and he played on the Imagine album. Yeah, so Klaus Vormann, possibly. Okay. Let's, let's add him to the list. Yep. Just before we uh, wrap things up, Phil, I've got a little trivia question for you. Which candidate of the fifth Beatle that we've talked about today is featured on four Beatles album covers? On the covers? Yes. Okay. One of the names that we've mentioned today as a, a candidate for fifth Beatle appears on four of their album covers. Okay, I'm going to have the to front, try... The front, I'm, the front I'm of the sleeve. I'm going to have to try and work this out. So, they must be on Sgt Pepper. Yes. So, Please Please Me has only got the, the Beatles on it. With the Beatles has only got the Beatles on it. So have Beatles for Sale and Hard Day's Night. Help's yep. only got the Beatles on it. Yep. Uh, Revolver's got a lot of people on it, so it yep. must be, they must be on Revolver. Nope. Oh, okay. There's so, th three more covers apart from Pepper so are we talking that this it, candidate features on. I think yeah. you might need to admit defeat, Phil. Uh, I don't want to admit defeat, Steve. <laughs> Rather than going through all the album covers. Uh, uh, go on, then. Who are we talking about? It's Stuart Sutcliffe. 
he's featured all, all three of the anthology covers. Yes. That was unfair. It's not unfair <laughs> at all. A perfectly valid question. If you remember, the covers are, it's a Klaus Vorman painting, who we just, we mentioned yes. Klaus Vorman, didn't we? Yeah, he did three paintings which joined together to form one, and Stu is visible on each of the three. So uh, that was a nice little tribute to Stu. Yeah, so he's featured on four Beatles album covers with Pepper as well. So we really come to the moments of truth, don't we, of who we feel out of that list should be uh, classed as the fifth, fifth Beatle. Beatle. Yeah, well, uh, um, before we reach the final decision, I'm just going to propose a suggestion that there are two fifth Beatles, a musical one, which is George Martin, and a non-musical one, which is Neil Aspinall. And I don't include uh, the ex-Beatles, so Pete Best and Stuart Stockliffe, they're ex-Beatles, but fifth Beatle contenders, my choices would be George Martin and Neil Aspinall. However, I think we have a, a final decision on that, don't we? I think the truth is there were only four Beatles. So there's no fifth Beatle. It can't be a fifth Beatle because it lends itself to the same thing that really annoys me when people say, what if, what if, right. if John Lennon had lived, what if, if the Beatles had stayed together, what if. It didn't happen, let's just live with it yes. and, and deal with it as it was. Greatest, yeah, maybe think about it a little bit, but we all know it didn't. And when people write these long essays, that's another story, isn't it? It gets me going, because <laughs> what ifs, I don't yeah. know. So we're going to agree, are we, that there is no fifth Beatle, it's just the four of them, John, Paul, George and Ringo, and this is purely a fun exercise to d debate who it might have been, but really it's no one. Yeah, so we really shouldn't abolish, should we? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an ex excuse to play some music. Absolutely, and to talk about it, and to talk about the Beatles story. Yeah. And obviously, people listening, if you think that we're wrong, if there was a fifth Beatle, or maybe we didn't include someone that you think was important to the story that we've missed out, contact us. Yep, yeah, we'll be sharing uh, links to this on social media, so please comment on Facebook if you uh, would like to share your thoughts on what we've been talking about. Or you can email us. Steve at arrivewithouttravelling.com That's it for this podcast. We'll be back very soon with more from Arrive Without Travelling. Thanks, bye for now. Arrive Without Travelling was presented by Steve Bradley and Phil Salter and was produced by Phil Salter for Northern Air Productions.